What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, air raids in Ukraine, sanctions on Russia, political pressures from China, and all the market swings to prove it. That stunning turnaround on Wall Street. And the West's effort to take action. Hoover Institution's senior fellow, Neil Ferguson. Europe has got to the point that it can't easily impose the kind of sanctions that would really hurt Russia without, of course, hurting itself. What international conflict means for the oil and gas markets, and whether Bitcoin really is a comparable hedge to gold with crypto bull Anthony Pompliano. The prevailing narrative of Bitcoin being that digital gold, being a censorship resistant technology. I think this is going to become a bigger and bigger narrative and Bitcoin's going to continue to serve as one of the solutions. It's Friday, February 25th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We've been watching the U.S. equity futures. Heading into the weekend, we're coming off of a stunning comeback on Wall Street. The Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq were down, really down for the majority of the day on Thursday. But late in the session, a turnaround. At the lows of the session, the Nasdaq was down nearly 3.5%, but managed to close with a gain of more than 3%. That is the biggest intraday swing since March of 2020. Large cap IT stocks and cybersecurity stocks led the entire turnaround. Of course, on Friday, the biggest market story, again though, is what's happening in Ukraine. Thursday into Friday, violence in Eastern Europe. Ukrainian forces clashed with Russian troops on the outskirts of Kyiv, while the country's president urged city residents to stay inside and said that he was Russia's number one target. He says at least 130 people have been killed so far, and the country is bracing for more violence. Thursday night, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense wrote on Facebook that Kyiv residents should prepare Molotov cocktails to defend their city. Meanwhile, cities across the country face missile strikes and aircraft crashes. Authorities there have said the only other time the capital has faced such large-scale attack was in 1941, when it was attacked by Nazi Germany. But around 4 p.m. local Moscow time, Russian news outlets started reporting that the Kremlin would be open to going to Minsk for high-level talks with Ukraine after a call between China's President Xi and Russia's President Putin. Here's Becky. On that call that Putin had with, with Xi of China today, 
Um, apparently, he said, according to these reports, and Reuters is also reporting this, that Russia is willing to hold high-level talks with Ukraine. He goes on to say that China has repeatedly called for the crisis to be resolved through dialogue. Now, to this point, China has not said that this is an invasion. They've been holding off, but maybe there is some pressure coming from China, potentially. Um, but it's hard to say, because as you mentioned, all the reports we get out on this from news organizations in Russia, you know, they were saying up until the moment they started invading that they were, there was no invasion plan. The, there's no way to minimize what's happening over there, but there have been people that said this is not the shock and awe that Putin was, was capable of. And I don't know. Is there any way to, to think that he would be willing to... You would think, I mean, who did we talk to earlier today who said that the pressure would have to come from the Russian people? Apparently the oligarchs, from what we've heard in different places, may not have the same sway that they've had over him. But you would think that President Xi of China would have some potential sway as well. At some point, it is important for, for the markets to be more stable for the purposes of, for China at least. The question is, how stable and are they willing to out, you know, are they willing to live with some instability? And maybe they are and maybe they aren't. Um, they used to, they, you know, they're often playing a, a longer game than maybe maybe the rest of the world. But if well, they if don't want, is, if, if, if they aren't willing to live with the instability, maybe they are putting pressure uh, on Putin at this point. Look, this is a way for China to kind of flex its muscle and show how it could be incredibly important in a situation like this. Um, and maybe get some Western leaders on the side of thinking, OK, you want to have China on the same page with some of these issues. Um, it would be incredibly important if they were able to put things back in place and maybe maybe take the idea of a land war in Europe off of the table. I mean, there's there's no way to underestimate how powerful that would be if that were the situation here. Again, these are reports that are coming out in some cases from Russian media. It's hard to substantiate, but the China factor probably can't be underestimated. This news comes as the EU prepares to freeze the assets of Vladimir Putin and his foreign minister Sergei Lavrov, and a day after the US announced unprecedented sanctions on Russia, including targeting 80% of all banking assets in the country. I'm confident that these devastating sanctions are going to be as devastating as Russian missiles and bullets and tanks. Yes, Russian bullets, missiles and tanks in Ukraine. Yes, I am. Biden stopped short, though, of announcing the harshest sanction available, kicking Russia out of SWIFT. Nifty name, but what is it? It stands for the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. No wonder they needed an acronym. It was founded in the 70s and is overseen by the National Bank of Belgium, the US Fed, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, and others. It's not a traditional bank in that it doesn't transfer funds. Rather, it acts as a messaging system linking over 11,000 financial institutions across 200 countries. Cutting Russia out of it would cut off most of the country's international transactions, including profits from its oil and gas production, which, as we will hear throughout the podcast today, account for 40% of the country's revenue. So why not go for it? Here's CNBC Europe anchor Steve Sedgwick on the ground in Poland. 
They are loath to do that for a host of reasons. One of those reasons that is if the Western countries can't pay uh, Russians for their gas and oil via the SWIFT system, then of course that might delay the transit of that oil and gas to the West, which could cripple countries like Germany, uh, which has a huge amount of its energy, uh, 30, 40 percent of its gas coming from the Russian state as well. So if you do push the extreme option on SWIFT, does that mean the Russians push the extreme option on energy, which could cripple large parts of the European economy? This is a stunningly complicated story on so many levels, Andrew. Steve, but it, am I wrong to believe if, if you can't sanction and use, use the SWIFT system and you can't sanction when it comes to oil because of the leverage that the Russians have over the rest of Europe at the moment and frankly the rest of the world, that you can't do much? You can, actually, because you can take out the individual financial institutions. And that's where the U.S. president and, and others in the West have gone as well. Because although you're not excluding them from these millions of financial uh, uh, transactions that are going on between 11,000 global financial institutions on a daily basis, what you can do is say, right, you're a, a Russian institution, you are VTB or whoever it may well be, or Spare Bank as well, which is around about a third of Russian bank accounts. We're going to bar you from dollar transactions. We're going to bar you from dollar financing. We're going to take you out uh, of the international markets and we're going to freeze accounts as well. So you can do a lot of things that stop the Russians from raising money and trading money in dollars and other currencies on an international basis. The other problem with SWIFT, and I know you guys must have looked at this as well, is for years, how many times have you and I and others talked about countries out there, especially the Middle East, not wanting to use dollars, not wanting to use Brent or WTI as a benchmark because they feel that actually they are beheld to the US financial system as well. So looking for alternatives. Now that's been red herring after red herring, but we know the Chinese would love an alternative financial system. If you barred the Russians from SWIFT, again, a very difficult option may well be for the West is actually that the Chinese build up their own uh, financial system with the Russian support, with allies' support as well, which diminishes the role of the dollar into the international system, which is something, of course, the U.S. and the West do not want to see. I, I was glad you went there because that's where I was going to go next. But I think that is the big issue that a lot of folks worry about in terms of what this means, in terms of connecting the dots ultimately to China. Steve, thank you. Appreciate it. Look, sitting at that situation, knowing what's happening with SWIFT, knowing that the U.S. was not saying much, that Biden didn't say much in that G7 meeting yesterday. Canada said, yes, let's use SWIFT. U.K., Boris Johnson came out and said very, very vociferously, let's use it. Um, but this is the problem. If we're not willing to take any risk or any pain, um, what are we willing to do? And th those are the questions that were getting thrown at President Biden yesterday when he had the press conference, too. President Biden, if sanctions cannot stop President Putin, what penalty can? I didn't say sanctions couldn't stop him. You've been talking about the threat of these sanctions for several weeks now. Yes, but the threat of the sanctions and imposing the sanctions and seeing the effect of the sanctions are two different things. Can you talk anything more about your conversation? Why not, why not sanction Putin directly today? How about the difference between agreeing to lead a country in the West and, and these gentlemen and ladies in, in, in Ukraine? I watched an interview yesterday as the foreign minister headed back. He had been in the United States talking to the Biden administration. He's heading back to, to Kiev. And they, he was interviewed last night. And it's like, you're probably number two on, on the list of, of who they're, they're going to put on trial, whatever that means. And it said, you know, the, the interviewer asked him, I mean, how do you feel about going back into the jaws of, of what, and, and Zelensky, think of, he's number one, think of these guys. And both of them said the same thing. I have soldiers that I'm asking to be on the front lines that are, 
risking their life, and, and I'm willing to do the same for my country, and it really sort of hit me as, as this is really serious and really uh, not great. On Shep Smith last night, they were playing back comments from George H.W. Bush back in 1989 and then 91, and then comments from Ronald Reagan talking about the Soviet Union and them saying this is going to be the last conquest, and, you know, if we believe them, we're neglecting our past and, our, and putting our future at risk. The Soviet leaders have openly and publicly declared that the only morality they recognize is that which will further their cause, which is world revolution, because they sometimes speak in soothing tones of brotherhood and peace, because like other dictators before them, they're always making their final territorial demand. Some would have us accept them at their word and accommodate ourselves to their aggressive impulses. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. We have seen guys flee, and recently we've seen, remember, I think it was in one of the Middle Eastern companies, you know, suddenly he was, you know, I don't know where the hell he was, but they leave. If, if they're not, if they're pretty sure that their regime is going down, they'll leave. these guys going back into it for the love of, of their country. And, and I think there is a lot of nationalism in, in Ukraine. Very difficult oh, situation. Right. It is. The SEC is reportedly probing whether stock sales by Elon Musk and his brother Kimball violated insider trading rules. The Wall Street Journal says that the investigation started last year when Kimball Musk sold $108 million worth of Tesla shares. The headline is, it's good to be Elon Musk's brother, I think. Anyway, Elon, uh, that was right before Elon tweeted a poll asking followers whether or not he should unload 10% of his stake in the company. Tesla stock dropped sharply following that Twitter poll. In comments to the FT yesterday, Elon Musk said his brother wasn't aware that he planned uh, to conduct the Twitter poll, but Tesla's lawyers didn't know about it. So that's a fine line. Walking, in. my brother didn't know, but but I definitely told the lawyers about uh, my Twitter account. And maybe it's he has to tell the lawyers because he has to tell the lawyers because of that agreement. Right. But um, I guess maybe it's not easy to be Elon's brother. I, does 108 million make it okay to, to be in his shadow? You're, you know, I guess it's Yeah, okay. I'll sign up for that. Yeah, I'll sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to be some, some people's siblings, well, I'm that, sure. I mean, that's the case with, uh, there's always sibling rivalries, but we all love each other. Right. You think they don't talk to each other? Come on. Oh, no, I think they do. Well, I think well, they I don't do, know if they talk, talk about anything? insider trading. Right. Or not. I mean, you, you, you got to. my brothers, but. I mean, it obviously looks bad, but you got to, you know, you, you got to prove it before you just say it. You got to make. You got to know that it well, happened that, that, before you. Do. That's what the SEC is looking into, right? right? Exactly. They'll, they'll, but that's what they'll they're doing. It out. Right. right. That's what they'll figure they're it out. Not saying it. They're right. investigating it. No, right. I know. I, I We're think it's it. for us to say it. Like yeah. that's. It, we got to see what happens with the SEC investigation. I think. Right. Next on Squawk Pod, mapping out Europe's oil and gas politics with one of the world's best-known historians, Neil Ferguson. What we're seeing here is uh, the consequence of Europe's allowing itself to become so reliant on Russian natural gas and oil to the extent that Vladimir Putin has been able to build up and modernize Russian's military, re-establish Russia as a great power. We'll be right back. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stan Andrew Bai. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Our anchors, Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed, our next guest says that while Europe believed energy independence with Russia would steady Russia's aggressiveness, in reality, it funded more Russian weapons. We're now seeing those arms at work in the Ukraine invasion. Joining us right now is Neil Ferguson, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and founder of Green Mantle. His new op-ed, co-authored with Citadel's Ken Griffin, is titled How to Beat Putin with Natural Gas. It's great to see you, Neil. Hi, Andrew. How do you beat Putin with natural gas at this point? Well, you can't do it overnight, but what we're seeing here is uh, the consequence of Europe's allowing itself to become so reliant on Russian natural gas and oil uh, to the extent that, firstly, uh, Vladimir Putin has been able to build up and modernize Russians' military, re-establish Russia as a a great power capable of winning multiple wars, as my good friend and colleague Chris Miller points out in today's New York Times. But also, of course, Europe has got to the point that it can't easily impose the kind of sanctions that would really hurt Russia without, of course, hurting itself. The Russians have known this for years. I can remember Putin more or less pointing it out explicitly long ago at the Munich Security Conference in 2007. Uh, This was something the Europeans walked into knowingly. The Germans for decades believed that if they could integrate Russia into the European economy, somehow Russia would behave better, would westernize itself. It was the same mistake we made, of course, with China on a global scale. The only real alternative for, for Europe is to diversify away from Russia as a source of energy. Unfortunately, the European Commission is convinced that it can do this with purely renewables, but that's not realistic. It's especially not realistic if the Germans refuse uh, to revisit nuclear power. So what's left? Well, the answer is liquefied uh, natural gas. And that is something that the United States, which provides Europe's uh, underlying security guarantee, has in abundance if it's prepared to develop those resources and then, of course, export them. Neil, Neil, there there have been calls, as you know, for this moment, effectively, to be a call for more green energy, for nuclear, for more wind, more solar, all of it. You think that's just not realistic? 
Well, I think the Europeans are gradually realizing this, not least because of the uh, energy price spikes we've seen recently. The, the reality is that if you bet entirely on wind and solar, you're at the mercy of very variable sources of energy. If you rule out nuclear power, which the Germans did years ago after Fukushima, uh, then you're basically relying on the French uh, to provide the nuclear power. Uh, but the critical point is that if you allow natural gas uh, to be developed and developed in a responsible, clean way, that actually provides a reliable source, uh, non-fluctuating source that allows your, your overall grid to be stable. And I think it's gradually dawning uh, on the European Commission that they can't go uh, exclusively uh, on wind and solar. They're gradually going to redefine green so that it includes nuclear and natural gas. But natural gas from Russia just makes you effectively the captive uh, of Vladimir Putin. It needs to be natural gas from other more reliable sources. And the United States is the best answer of all because the United States has natural gas in abundance if, of course, uh, the US government allows the energy industry to develop those resources. They're much, much cleaner, of course, than the Russians. Uh, the na Russian natural gas industry is extraordinarily dirty, produces a great deal of methane. So even from a green point of view, it's preferable uh, to get your natural gas from the clean United States rather than dirty and dangerous Russia. And, and Neil, in, in terms of the relationship that the U.S. should have with Russia and Putin, that Europe should have with Russia and Putin, you, you just made the argument, I think, that Europe made a mistake by trying to integrate Russia to some degree into the economy, that, that perhaps they should have actually pushed him away. This is an interesting argument because we, we saw this play out in the United States over the last four years under Trump, and then we saw a shift under Biden, and now there's a debate about that and where we are today. Well, I think we've learned that you can't deter Putin from making war on neighboring countries or even not neighboring countries like Syria by threatening him with sanctions. That's been obvious uh, since at least 2014. And yet the Biden administration decided that it would somehow be able to prevent uh, the uh, destruction of a democratic and free Ukraine by military force simply by threatening sanctions, such sanctions as you've never beheld, terrible, terrible sanctions. But in truth, when the chips are down and you say to the Europeans, OK, how can we really hurt Putin? The things that, that would actually hurt him, like excluding the Russian financial system from SWIFT or actually preventing him from exporting his gas and oil, especially oil, the Europeans are like, well, actually, maybe not those sanctions. Can we do the sanctions that won't hurt us? And Putin knew this would happen. He knew that this was the fundamental weakness of the Western position which is why he's gone ahead. By the way, very few people foresaw that he was going to invade Ukraine. I've been arguing this since the beginning of January because it was so clear that sanctions wouldn't deter him. The only thing that would have deterred Putin, remember, is a significant improvement in Ukraine's defense capability that would have inflicted serious damage on a Russian invading force. But we decided not to do that. In fact, we dialed back our arming of the Ukrainians last year, which I think was a very bad mistake uh, by the Biden administration. And we also temporarily, of course, the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which has, of course, now been cancelled. So all of these things are happening too late and they won't stop. The outcome is going to be the decapitation of, of Ukraine, uh, the installation of a puppet government. And the rest of us are going to, I'm afraid, just look away. Cheese will be next. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, Bitcoin versus gold. Are they equals for investors seeking safe haven? If the last 24 hours are any indication, nope. 
crypto bull Anthony Pompliano on digital gold as a hedge. Bitcoin is an American technology from an ethos standpoint. It's about censorship resistance, about free speech, it's about self-sovereignty and individual rights. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And me, Cameron Costa. I'm your MC. As Russia invades Ukraine, investors are seeking safe haven. Now, historically, gold has been the safe haven of choice, but with the advent of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin bulls started calling the token a digital gold, meaning it could offer a safe hedge when things started to go awry. Except now, this week, that thesis was put to the test. And gold came out on top. Gold hit its highest price since September of 2020. Bitcoin, on the other hand, weathered a steep sell-off, like really steep, $150 billion wiped off the market. Friday morning though, Bitcoin appeared to be staging a little bit of a comeback. Although, as we all know by now, lesson number one in crypto, volatility is the name of the game. Here's Joe, Becky, and Andrew. I was thinking, we call it a, it, it, it behaves like a NASDAQ stock. And then I was thinking, you know, you can have worse characteristics than the trade is. I mean, the greatest uh, stocks that we've seen, the fangs and everything else. I mean, it's been pretty good to be a NASDAQ stock. Except- Depending on when you get in. <laughs> if, if, if you, if you got exactly. in meta, it's not been great lately. Yeah. yeah. I did see a, a statistic you know yesterday no. that, that it matched, it matched its uh, 2000, gold matched its 2011 high mm-hmm. recently. Bitcoin's up 150,000 percent or something. From its 2011 level. If I I tell you that I'm selling you gold, but I'm actually selling you a NASDAQ stock. It depends on who you're talking to. Right? No, no, but we've talked about it. Is it digital gold? Currency. Is it a digital currency? I've been, you know, I'm just saying it's it's being marketed as something that it's it's not. Right. It's, and I'm, and I'm just saying it, you can it'd be better than saying it's a utility stock. Nobody's going to buy that. It's better than saying it's a Dow dog that doesn't move for five years. So it's a Nasdaq stock. But the Nasdaq has been very very good to me, not to me, but okay. that's, that's an old expression, right? Could be worse. Joining us right now is Anthony Pompliano, Pomp Investments founder. And partner, Anthony, good morning to you. We're all just trying to make sense of, of what Bitcoin is supposed to be. We've been told it's current a currency. We've been told it's digital gold. Some people think it's a religion. Uh, some people think it's a NASDAQ stock. What, what, what do you think it really is? Yeah, well, thanks again for uh, having me. I, I, look, I think that ultimately 
Uh, Bitcoin serves as different things to different people. You know, if you look at money in general, money is a religion, whether it's fiat currency, uh, whether it's Bitcoin, et cetera. You have to put confidence in uh, the item that you're willing to exchange for goods or services. So I think that that's true across a lot of different assets. Uh, but when you start to look at kind of the Ukraine and Russia situation, what's fascinating to me is on the news of the actual invasion, uh, gold moved upwards slightly uh, and Bitcoin actually went down a couple of percent. But since about 530 uh, on Thursday morning, what we've seen is Bitcoin's up 10 percent and gold's actually down about half a percent. And so what I think is you know, we got to be careful of is not judging the performance of these assets based on a couple of hours. Uh, but I do think that uh, the prevailing narrative of Bitcoin being that digital gold, being a censorship resistant technology, especially when we see sanctions, not only the United States to uh, Russia, but we see China sanctioning Raytheon and Lockheed, or we see Canada sanctioning some of their own citizens. I think this is going to become a bigger and bigger narrative, and Bitcoin's going to continue to serve as one of the solutions uh, as the world kind of wakes up to the fact that financial censorship is a default. And look, you know, you know, my job is to be the professional skeptic and and plays devil's advocate here. But if we lay, we're laying a gold uh, chart over a Bitcoin chart. What we should do is lay a Nasdaq chart over a Bitcoin chart because. As Bitcoin went up, even in the past day, you saw the markets also return. So doesn't it just suggest here we have a remarkably speculative asset? Yeah, I think that you've got to look at a couple of different things. So there's definitely two different types of holders of Bitcoin. Uh, pre maybe end of 2020, it was definitely uh, mostly retail and they treat Bitcoin as a reserve asset. Starting in the end of 2020, when we saw Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller, a lot of institutions start to come in, those uh, folks look at Bitcoin as the riskiest asset in their portfolio. And so whenever we go to a risk-off environment, they're going to sell the asset. Uh, those retail investors, though, when you look at the on-chain metrics, continue to just dollar cost average and, and hold the asset. So it's still a pretty illiquid asset. The other component of this that I think is really important when we look at price over the last three or four months is that at the end of 2021, uh, Bitcoin was up 65%. A lot of the crypto market was up 10, 15, 20x. And so a lot of fund managers were just taking profits. They end up booking uh, those profits to take their fee. Uh, and so I think that kind of going into tax season, you'll see some selling for taxes, et cetera. And then we'll kind of be off to the races again. But I wouldn't read too much into the last three or four months of uh, price movement, just given that it had gone up so much compared to other assets like the stock market, and, uh, et cetera. When you look at holders and their base price, meaning when people got in on average, you look at where we are now, we're at 38 bu- you know, 38,000 bucks is what I should say. Um, what, what, what's, what's the basis for the average investor in Bitcoin right now? Yeah, so there's something called realized price, which basically looks at the last time that Bitcoin traded hands. You can calculate each individual Bitcoin, what was that price at, and you can kind of get to uh, a base holder price, uh, one way to do it. And what that's sitting at right now is around mid-20,000s. So most people are in profit. uh, And what we're seeing is that actually the people who are not in profit tend to be the short-term holders. So the long-term holders continue to dollar cost average and hold an asset that they believe uh, is their reserve currency. It's the traders, it's the short-term holders, it's the kind of institutional traders uh, that they're the ones who end up, if they're selling or they're forced sellers, uh, they're selling at a loss. And I think that a lot of that's kind of behind us uh, what you see in the on-chain metrics. I, I know you're a bull, so tell us, what do you think the upside is at this point? Let's put it out in the next 12 months. What do you think the downside is though, in terms of range? Yeah. So from a price standpoint, nobody knows. Um, I think the bigger uh, question right now is just what is the United States going to do with Bitcoin? Uh, You start to see more and more politicians talking about it. And I think that one of the pieces that we have to start talking about is the United States needs to embrace Bitcoin. It's now a national security issue, right? On the off chance, 0.01% chance that the US dollar 
ends up not being a global reserve currency used by every single country in the world, uh, the next best option is for the United States to be the biggest player, the largest holder of a decentralized digital currency that no one controls. And right now, the United States doesn't have uh, kind of a single strategy here. We now have about 30% of hash rate in the US, uh, but I think we need to get very serious about what is our Bitcoin strategy as a nation state? How are we going to be a leader here? Because ultimately, Bitcoin is an American technology from an ethos standpoint. It's about censorship resistance, it's about free speech, it's about self-sovereignty and individual rights. And I think that the US should play a very, very big role in this going forward. Pomp, it's a longer conversation. We hope to have it with you, especially as we think about SWIFT and the sanctions uh, that folks are thinking about in the context of Russia, Europe, and therefore the connection to China. Pomp, thank you again. That is the podcast for today, and that wraps up our entire week. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. In the meantime, we'll catch you on Twitter. We're at Squawk CNBC. Have a good, safe weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.